This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. Due to the graphic nature of this woman's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under the age of 13. In 1880, it was all on the line for Belle Reed. Money, pride, and reputation her prized horse was on a winning streak in the Kansas racing circuit, and she wanted to capitalize on that fame. John Hargrove, a wealthy businessman from Arkansas, owned a similarly successful racehorse, and she challenged him to a race. Bell bet Hargrove $500 that her horse could best his. But on the day of the race, it was Hargrove who won, making his horse the animal to beat and skyrocketing its value. A few weeks later, she asked for a rematch. This time, she upped the stakes. Instead of $500, she bet $5,000 that she would win. It was a small fortune, equivalent to over $120,000 today. On top of that, the winner would also take ownership of the loser's horse. Hargrove, of course, accepted, expecting another easy victory. The rematch between Bell and Hargrove's horses attracted attention far and wide. The crowds and bets surged in anticipation of the dramatic showdown. The smart money was on Hargrove's horse, the undefeated champion. To everyone's surprise, the race wasn't close at all. Bell's horse won handily, just as she'd planned. It was later revealed that Bell had asked her jockey to throw the first race to artificially inflate the value of Hargrove's horse. When she won the second time, she had more to gain. Not only did she win 10 times her original bet, she won a horse worth substantially more than it would have been after the first challenge. The gambit nearly bankrupted Hargrove. Bell Reed always knew how to turn a loss into a win if she ever really lost a bet at all. Picture a murderer, a gangster, a thief. Did you picture a woman? 
We didn't think so. Society associates men with dangerous crimes. But what happens when the perpetrator is female? Every week, we examine the psychology, motivations, and atrocities of female criminals. Hi, I'm Sammy Nye. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And you're listening to Female Criminals on the Parcast Network. Today, we're talking about Belle Starr, the legendary bandit queen whose outlaw antics made her front page news all across the Wild West in the 1800s. In part one, we discussed Belle's upbringing during the Civil War, her first marriage, and her initial brushes with public persecution and legal prosecution. This week, we'll cover her life in the lawless frontier that earned Belle her moniker, and what, if any, of her legend might actually be true. At Parcast, we're grateful for you, our listeners. You allow us to do what we love. Let us know how we're doing. Reach out on Facebook and Instagram at Parcast and Twitter at Parcast Network. And if you enjoyed today's episode, the best way to help us is to leave a five-star review wherever you're listening. It really does help us. We also now have merch. Head to Parcast.com slash merch for more information. In the late 1800s, the American frontier was wild, lawless, and filled with legendary figures like Jesse James, Butch Cassidy, and Billy the Kid. But while classic westerns focus on the men of the time, few outlaws grabbed as many headlines as the notorious Belle Star, labeled the Bandit Queen by newspapers. She was connected to robberies, murders, and numerous counts of horse theft throughout her adult life, though she was rarely prosecuted for her alleged crimes. With the quickest draw and the sharpest tongue in the West, Belle cut a memorable figure, riding through town side saddle in her black velvet dress. She captured the attention of everybody who met her, from angry neighbors to infatuated journalists to notorious outlaws and murderers. Belle's first husband, outlaw Jim Reed, died in 1874 when she was 26. After his death, Belle decided to remain in Syene, Texas with her two children, three-year-old Eddie and six-year-old Pearl. Belle's parents also lived in Syene, and she had spent most of her adult life there. But the town disliked having Belle for a neighbor, as many neighbors believed she was guilty of horse theft, even though she'd been acquitted by a grand jury. And even if she wasn't, Jim Reed had certainly been guilty of that and worse. After a letter-writing campaign against her, Belle and the children left Texas in 1876. Four years after fleeing Texas and moving to Kansas, 32-year-old Belle married 27-year-old Bruce Younger on May 15, 1880. Bruce's cousin, Cole Younger, had been part of Jim Reed's gang of renegades. It seems likely that he would have introduced Belle and Bruce. There are some colorful accounts of Belle and Bruce's relationship, including a story that Belle forced Bruce to marry her at gunpoint. But whatever actually took place between them, the marriage was brief and Bruce ran off. Three weeks later, Belle had another new husband. Belle married Sam Starr on June 5, 1880. It was another relationship connected to Jim Reed's gang. Sam's father was a well-known horse thief. Sam Starr was notable for something else, being extremely handsome. And he, like Bruce Younger, was several years younger than the 32-year-old Belle. 
When there are age differences in romantic relationships, we stereotypically see older men with younger women. But as we've come to expect from her, Belle didn't conform to stereotypes. Vanessa is going to take over on the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but she has done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Sammy. In an article about modern dating trends, Dr. Noam Sponsor points out that many gender-assigned characteristics are due to socialization, not biology. Including how we have historically chosen and continue to choose our mates. In the U.S., it wasn't until the 20th century that women began to gain the rights to own property and control their finances. Up until this point, they were almost entirely dependent on their husbands or male family members. However, these social conventions didn't extend to the rough-and-tumble territories of the American West. This freed Belle from the need to marry an older, more established man for social mobility and financial security. The bandit queen didn't need anyone to take care of her, and she could marry for whatever reasons she liked. Following her wedding to Sam Starr in 1880, the couple and Belle's children moved deeper into Oklahoma Territory north of the Canadian River. Bell named her new home Younger's Bend. A reporter for the Helena Daily Independent who visited her home provided a detailed description, writing, quote, The hut is made of logs, the crevices plastered with mud and clay, and the chimney made of stones similarly plastered. There are two rooms, both containing fireplace, furniture of very good make, pictures on the walls, and an array of well-thumbed books on a shelf in the corner. He made special note that Belle, with all of her devilry, loved to read. It hardly sounds like a mansion, but for the time, Younger's Bend was a well-loved, comfortable home for Belle and her family. It marked a happy period in her life. She made friends with her neighbors and began playing the piano again. Instead of entertaining in body saloons, as she was rumored to have done when she lived in Texas, Belle entertained the locals in church services, barn dances, and social affairs. She was a pillar of the community, respected and beloved in a way she had never found during her tumultuous marriage to Jim Reed. But Belle's arrival in Younger's Bend coincided with the height of Judge Isaac C. Parker's attempt to clean up the crime-ridden Western territories. Parker was later nicknamed the Hanging Judge for his high rate of capital convictions. Parker had been on the bench in the region for about five years, but his death grip on the territory's legal system was reaching its tightest point when Bell moved to Younger's Bend in 1880. Her reputation as a suspected horse thief and general association with known criminals made her a prime target for Parker's justice, despite her popularity. If you believe Belle to be the rough-riding, sharp-tongued gunslinger many accounts make her out to be, it's possible that Belle's suddenly sterling reputation in the community was an intentional front. Knowing local law enforcement was keeping an especially close eye on things, Belle attending church, barn dances, and other wholesome social events could be read as her laying low. However, some biographers claim that, far from avoiding Judge Parker's attention, Bell was a fixture in the courtroom, but not because she was on trial. Instead, she often paid the legal fees of Native Americans who couldn't afford a proper defense. Her husband, Sam Starr, was Cherokee, and Bell had befriended many of the locals around Younger's Bend. 
Bell became a staunch supporter of Native Americans' rights, an uncommon position for the time. Biographer Philip W. Steele claims in his book, Star Tracks, that, quote, although Bell Starr was his adversary, Parker came to admire her for the concern and assistance she gave to many of her Native American outlaw friends, end quote. This idealized altruism is a common theme when it comes to stories of famous outlaws. Whether it's Jesse James or Robin Hood, the idea of defending the poor from the rich often elevates outlaws in our minds from criminal to hero. From pouring money into the defense funds of poor Native Americans on trial to protecting criminal husbands and other outlaws from prosecution, newspapers of the time seemed eager to highlight Bell's capacity to look out for others. Through these articles, a public, stark image of Bell Star began to take shape, riding side saddle in pricey, fashionable velvet dresses with two pistols strapped to her waist, aiding those who didn't have the means to provide for themselves, gave rise to Bell's most well-known newspaper epithet, the Bandit Queen. In an article entitled Robin Hood and the American Outlaw, Kent L. Steckmesser dissects the anatomy of famous outlaws and tries to make sense of why exactly we're so admiring of these criminal figures. He argues that outlaw heroes usually emerge in societies where the average person believes the law to be corrupt. This might have been true of many people relocating to the unsettled West at this time. Those who had previously pledged themselves to the Confederacy found themselves faced with an American government they didn't necessarily recognize or respect. It may have been especially true for Bell, who grew up during the Civil War and allegedly spied for the Confederacy. In this way, outlaws become a champion for socially and economically oppressed classes, it's easy to see how a cultural desire for a hero in the rapidly changing Wild West of America may have inspired people to celebrate rather than condemn Bellstar for her daring deeds. It also might explain the varied and often contradictory stories written about her life after the fact. Some events may have been tampered with or embellished by biographers who perhaps didn't even realize they were assigning meaning to Bell's actions that wasn't there. However, as much debate as there was over her alleged criminal involvement, in 1882, she finally had official charges brought against her, confirming the bandit part of her honorarium. On September 21st, she and Sam Starr were arrested for stealing horses. Whatever goodwill she had fostered with Judge Parker by defending the poor in his courtroom had officially run out. Coming up, we'll see the consequences of those charges. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all, but it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Elevate every morning with Tommy John's Second Skin Underwear. The luxurious support of Second Skin guarantees everything will go smoothly. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, guys love Tommy John. Plus, your most valuable assets are covered with Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or its free guarantee. Shop Tommy John's friends and family sale right now and get 25% off site-wide at TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. TommyJohn.com slash Spotify. See site for details. 
Now, back to the story. On September 21, 1882, Bell and Sam Starr were arrested for stealing horses, putting them in the crosshairs of Judge Isaac Parker. He was known as the Hanging Judge for his harsh punishments in an effort to clean up the Western territories. According to the Helena Daily Independent, Bell didn't even actually steal the horses personally. Sam Starr had an altercation with a man the paper names only as West. After publicly losing a fight to Sam, West stole two horses himself and sold them to Bell at a considerable discount. But it was Bell and Sam who were arrested for theft. And when they blamed West, he claimed to have never seen the horses before in his life. Much like the Robin Hooding of Bell's legend, this sort of narrative downplays any guilt she might have had in her criminality. In this version of events, Bell didn't steal a horse. She didn't even knowingly purchase a stolen horse. Whatever the truth of Bell's involvement, Judge Parker found her and Sam guilty. On March 19, 1883, several months after she was arrested, Bell was sentenced to spend two six-month terms in the House of Correction in Detroit, Michigan. Sam Starr received the same sentence. Both had the opportunity for release after nine months with good behavior. They sent Bell's children, 14-year-old Pearl and 11-year-old Eddie, to live with family friends during their incarceration. Bell's stay in the correctional facility in Detroit was brief and uneventful. Her education and wit made her popular with the warden and matron overseeing her. One biographer claims she used this time to get 12 chapters into writing a novel. Supposedly, it was a love story between an Italian bandit and a Spanish gypsy heroine. But if this work ever existed, it was never published, and no real record of it survived. After nine months of good behavior, 35-year-old Belle and 30-year-old Sam were both released on December 19, 1883, and sent back to Younger's Bend. They picked up Pearl and Eddie on their way home. Another peaceful period in Belle's life passed. By 1883, Judge Parker's reign of terror had ended. She and Sam planted a flourishing garden. They had exactly 22 cats, and although Belle wasn't known to be much of a homemaker, it said she delighted in sharing recipes she was proud of with neighbors. Of course, as was always the case with Belle, there's a competing story. Far from settling into a quiet countryside life, tending her garden and counting her cats, when Belle returned to Younger's Bend, she brought trouble home to roost. Belle began to frequent gambling halls and saloons in nearby Fort Smith. Some accounts claim she led her own gang of thieves, or at least was a well-known safe house for outlaws. Younger's Bend was surrounded by unsettled wilderness and deep canyons that fugitives could easily disappear in. Neighbors complained that Belle or her outlaw friends would often steal and shoot local livestock. However, there were no formal charges brought against her at this time. While the idea that she was running a gang from Younger's Bend and hiding fugitives left and right is certainly more interesting than her homemaking, there's no way to corroborate it. This could be another example of the Robin Hood effect. It's also possible that these various retellings of Belle's life are the result of journalists trying to make Belle appear more favorable, as female criminals are often judged more severely than their male counterparts by society. 
Defense attorney Helena Kennedy wrote an article for The Guardian based on her experiences defending women, entitled, Why We Judge Female Criminals More Harshly. Kennedy points out that part of what fascinates and horrifies us when it comes to criminals is the challenge they present to our very human beliefs in fundamental goodness, especially when we can't find a discernible motive, like jealousy or greed or anger. This phenomenon is magnified when the person committing a crime is a woman. As a society, we have certain expectations of what it means to be part of the so-called fairer sex. Women are traditionally thought to be softer, more nurturing, and nonviolent. By placing Bell near criminality without ever giving her any real agency, biographers may have been trying to maintain a delicate balance. Salacious enough to grab interest, but not so abhorrent as to invite condemnation. Wherever the truth lies about her involvement in the crimes around Younger's Bend earlier that year, in December of 1884, there was definitive proof that Bell was living up to her bandit queen moniker. John Middleton was a well-known outlaw and sometime friend of the stars. He arrived in Younger's Bend just before Christmas and trouble followed close at his heels. Middleton had a lifelong history of petty crimes and was accused of burning down a courthouse. After being arrested in Texas four months earlier, he had escaped from jail before a trial could be arranged and fled the state. When he showed up on Bell's doorstep, he was a fugitive with a reward of over $500 on his head. Authorities were able to track Middleton to the vicinity of Younger's Bend, but unable to find any further trace of him. There are claims that in the four months he spent hiding out, Bell and Middleton fell in love. He was as handsome as Sam Starr and better educated, which some biographers say turned Bell's head. During their alleged affair, they participated in multiple robberies, including that of the treasurer of the Creek Nation. In mid-April of 1885, after months of continued searching for Middleton, law enforcement raided Bell's ranch. But Middleton was gone. Bell taunted the officers, mocking their incompetence, telling them that she'd been harboring him under their noses the whole time. But Middleton hadn't simply left. She had smuggled him to safety. Whether they were having an affair or Bell was just adhering to some outlaw code of honor, she went to significant lengths to sneak Middleton past authorities. She concealed Middleton in her covered wagon and drove him out of Younger's Bend on the pretense of visiting friends. Once clear of the area, she loaned Middleton a horse to ride the rest of the way to safety. Though he was able to avoid the authorities, karmic justice caught up to Middleton. While trying to ford the Poto River on horseback, he drowned. When Bell learned of his death, she rode out to where he was buried and forced his family to disinter him, claiming his three pistols as her own, as well as the other personal effects found on his body. Whether they were actually lovers or just friends bound by the thrill of desperado life, Middleton's death hit Bell hard. But she would have little time to mourn his passing, as bigger problems came to the Starr family that year. On June 15, 1885, Three robbers held up a U.S. mail wagon in the Cherokee Nation. Sam Starr was identified as one of the robbers. Due to a lack of evidence, no warrant was actually served, but it placed Sam firmly on law enforcement's radar. 
Then, in October of 1885, a post office near Fort Smith was burgled. Sam Starr was again named as one of the assailants, and this time he was formally charged. For months, Sam evaded capture by hiding out in the wilderness surrounding Younger's Bend. Law enforcement knew he was somewhere in the area and would often drop in unannounced, trying to catch the stars unaware. In one confrontation, Bell spotted a group of marshals approaching from a lookout she'd built in a tree and invited them to stay for dinner. The marshals feasted on cornbread, coffee, and a hot stew Bell provided. They didn't notice that Bell didn't eat anything herself. When they went to leave, Bell revealed that she'd made the stew from a rattlesnake she'd killed that morning. Horrified at what they'd eaten, the marshals were immediately sick and fled Younger's Bend. After this encounter, law enforcement left the stars in peace for a time, abandoning the search for Sam. But 38-year-old Bell drew their focus herself in the new year. In January of 1886, she was indicted on another horse theft charge. This was her first charge since being sent to prison three years prior. Bell pled not guilty, posted bail, and was released. She seemed unfazed by any potential legal repercussions, returning to Younger's Bend and the company of fellow outlaws. The next month, there was another robbery. The residents of a nearby farm were held at gunpoint by three men claiming to be deputy marshals. They stole about $40, a pistol, and a horse. A witness came forward stating that one of the men who robbed them wasn't a man at all, but a woman dressed as one. The witness fingered Bell Starr. This wasn't the first time Bell had been accused of dressing like a man to participate in crime. Most biographers discount these stories as an embellishment to her legend. But this claim came from an article in the Fort Smith Examiner, and a specific witness was quoted. If we're to believe that Bell dressed as a man to commit a robbery in this instance, it seems a little more likely that she did it in the past as well. We can only speculate, but it's not impossible. In June of 1886, Bell went to Fort Smith and surrendered, again pleading not guilty. Her attorney submitted half a dozen witnesses willing to testify that Bell was at a dance the night of the robbery, though there's no other evidence that this dance ever took place. Bell made bail and spent the next few days in Fort Smith, shopping and visiting friends as if nothing were amiss. Bell's hearing on June 29th was brief. The witness who had named Bell, a young woman, maintained her version of events. Bell was one of the robbers, disguised as a deputy marshal. However, the male witnesses all claimed it couldn't have been a woman, as the robbers had been large, burly men. It's possible that a bit of gender bias may have saved Bell's skin if she did in fact commit the robbery. The men weren't even able to entertain the idea that they could have been robbed by a woman. Bell's own witnesses didn't even need to testify. She was released that day. While Bell's legal battle was resolved, Sam Starr was still a fugitive. On September 16, 1886, he was spotted by law enforcement riding Bell's prize mare, Venus, through a cornfield. Officer Frank West pursued Sam as he attempted to escape capture astride Venus. Desperate to stop him, West fired off a few shots, and Sam responded, starting a shootout. Venus was shot out from under Sam and died on the spot. Sam, though injured, managed to escape home to Bell. 
She was heartbroken to hear that Venus had been killed and held a grudge against West until his death. But she was also worried about losing Sam. After the shootout, Bell convinced Sam to turn himself over to federal court. He only had one previous charge on his record. If he gave himself up willingly, he might receive a lesser sentence. Sam agreed. She accompanied him to Fort Smith, where he was arraigned and posted bail, freeing him temporarily. Instead of returning to Younger's Bend immediately, Sam and Bell stayed in town for the annual fair. They participated in a Wild West show in which Bell led a mock stagecoach robbery. Even more bizarre, one of the fake passengers was the hanging judge Isaac Parker himself. Some accounts claim this performance was greatly exaggerated in the newspaper that recounted it, and that Bell merely performed trick shots on horseback. Either way, it's interesting to see Bell capitalizing on her growing reputation as the bandit queen. In his book, Illusions of Immortality, A Psychology of Fame and Celebrity, psychologist David Giles discusses how fame, even in a local sense, produces a liberation from behavior constraint. Celebrities don't have to follow the rules. Typical rules of politeness or even legality are often waived if enough people know your name. It's likely that Bell's fame, or infamy, was appealing to her, not just because it was flattering, but because in some ways it made her more free than the average outlaw to do what she wanted. The evidence of this is in the fact that this performance happened at all. Despite her constant brushes with the law between 1884 and 1886, and the fact that she was only in Fort Smith for her husband's arraignments in regards to a robbery, Bell wasn't hiding from anybody. Far from the rejection she experienced from neighbors in Texas years prior, this time the public seemed to love her for her crimes. Following her showing at the fair, Belle and Sam returned to Younger's Bend. Sam's trial had been set for September of the following year, 10 months away. In the meantime, in December of 1886, Belle and Sam attended a Christmas dance at the home of a friend. Belle hoped that some frivolity would ease Sam's stress. Unfortunately, Bell didn't know that Frank West was also attending the dance. Coming up, Bell and Sam confront their archenemy. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda. You never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Did you know cats tend to hide symptoms of sickness and pain? I learned this the hard way after losing my cat, Gingy. So I created Pretty Litter, a health monitoring litter that helps detect early signs of illness by changing colors, saving you money and potentially your cat's life. Pretty Litter is veterinary and developed, and it's the easiest way to keep tabs on your fur baby's health right at home. Go to prettylitter.com and use code SPOTIFY for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Now back to the story. In December 1886, Belle and Sam Starr attended a Christmas party at their friend's home. Unfortunately, Frank West was also at this party. The Starrs still held a grudge against him for killing Belle's prized horse, Venus. Sam confronted West where he sat outside, warming himself by a fire. 
Some accounts say Sam started the confrontation of his own accord, and some say at Bell's urging. Their confrontation quickly escalated to another shootout. Within minutes, both West and Sam were dead. Bell buried Sam near Younger's Bend and kept his name for the rest of her life. With barely any time to mourn the death of her husband, Bell faced a new kind of legal trouble. The Younger's Bend property was located in Native American territory. The land parcel was part of Sam's Cherokee birthright and in his name. With him dead, Bell faced eviction. To keep her home, Bell married for the fourth time in early 1887. Jim July was a well-educated 24-year-old Creek and Cherokee Native American with close ties to the Starr family. Bell was 39 now, making her 13 years older than Jim. Many accounts claim she treated Jim more like a son than husband. This might explain why her new husband adopted her last name, often known as Jim July Starr. Although her marriage resolved her residency issue, it created friction on the home front. Pearl was now 19, and Eddie was nearly 17, making them only five and seven years younger than their new stepfather. Belle's relationship with Eddie in particular had grown contentious as she was increasingly troublesome and rebellious. Belle was rumored to beat him. Many stories about Belle portray her as quick-tempered and sharp-tongued in turn but accounts of her being abusive toward her children only start to crop up around this time. These stories also persist throughout the rest of her life, making it seem likely that they're true. This change may have been the result of some degree of social isolation. Belle previously participated in community events, but after Sam's death, she didn't have many significant relationships with other peers and adults. Even her new husband, as we pointed out, was significantly younger and easily cowed or influenced by Belle. She frequented some events held by neighbors, but nobody pops out in any accounts of her life as a particularly close friend. Younger's Bend was hours away from her extended family. In an essay titled The Relationship Between Social Isolation and Child Abuse by Anne A. Peterson, Peterson points out the connection between relative social isolation in adults and child abuse. Some degree of social isolation was typical of families in the West at this time. Houses were few and far between geographically, with the nearest neighbor often being miles away. As Peterson's analysis highlights, parents who feel isolated from their typical support systems, like a spouse, family, or close friends, often enact their feelings of disconnect and powerlessness on their children. This tends to be especially true of parents who don't participate in any social system, like a day-to-day -day job or local organization. Belle was perceived as an outlaw for most of her adult life. It's hard to imagine anybody living more removed from a typical social system than Belle Starr. And that's the exact kind of isolation that would make her statistically more likely to be physically abusive to her children, especially Eddie, who tested her authority and boundaries continually as he got older. Meanwhile, Pearl fell in love with a boy she'd gone to school with, named Robert McClure. Robert sought Pearl's hand in marriage, but Belle refused him, saying Pearl needed a wealthier spouse. To end their relationship, Belle sent her to stay with her grandparents in Missouri. While Pearl was away, Belle forged a letter to Robert. 
In it, she claimed Pearl had fallen in love and married somebody else. Robert believed the letter, married another woman, and left the territory. Unfortunately for Belle, her plan hit a significant hitch. Pearl was pregnant. Furious with her mother's betrayal, Pearl cut all contact with her. Likewise, Belle forbid her daughter from returning to Younger's Bend with a child. Some biographers think that Belle's extreme reaction to Pearl's pregnancy had less to do with social decorum and more to do with the baby's parentage. A few accounts make the case that Eddie, Pearl's half-brother, was actually the father. Pearl and Eddie were often separated during their formative years, but spent large portions of their later adolescence together at Younger's Bend in relative isolation. Because they weren't raised as siblings, they didn't see one another as such, but they had all the shared experiences that come with being brother and sister, and so fell in love. It's certainly salacious, but in most prevailing accounts, there's nothing concrete to indicate their relationship was anything beyond familial. In April 1887, Pearl gave birth to a daughter, Flossie. Even with the arrival of her only granddaughter, Belle held her grudge for months. But when Eddie was shot in October after stealing a horse, she wrote to Pearl, exaggerating the injury to summon her home. Pearl left Flossie in the care of an aunt and returned to Younger's Bend. Not nearly done meddling in her daughter's life, Belle instructed the aunt to put Flossie up for adoption. At the same time, she hid any correspondence from the aunt before Pearl could read it. Flossie's adoption papers were signed on November 19, 1888, and Pearl never saw her again. She stayed in Younger's Bend solely for her brother's sake. There was no mending things between Pearl and Belle. Eddie, now 18, continued to get into trouble, and he and Belle had increasingly violent altercations. On one occasion, Eddie asked to borrow Belle's favorite horse to ride to a dance. Belle refused him, but Eddie took her horse anyway. When he returned, Belle beat him for his disobedience so badly that he needed medical attention. These stories are a dramatic shift from her daring robberies and witty one-liners. And they extended to her new husband, Jim July. Her treatment of him was well-documented as being condescending and cruel. When he was charged with horse theft, Belle agreed to testify against him. This was a stark contrast to the Belle star who fiercely protected any outlaw who sought refuge in Younger's Bend. On Saturday, February 2nd, 1889, Belle accompanied Jim July to Fort Smith for the horse theft case. They spent the night with a friend of Belle's on their way. Perhaps having been persuaded not to further publicly humiliate her husband by testifying against him in court, the next morning, Belle headed home while Jim continued on to Fort Smith. While en route to Younger's Bend early that evening, Belle stopped at the house of Jackson Rowe. It was a popular Sunday gathering place for local families, and it was busy when Belle arrived. Eddie had been there, but left shortly before Belle arrived. Among those gathered was also Edgar Watson, a neighbor who Belle had long-standing issues with. Almost immediately after Belle arrived, Watson left too. Belle left the row home about a half hour after she arrived. As she rode home to Younger's Bend, following a familiar path, a shot rang out. The first bullet hit her in the back, and she fell from her horse. She was shot again, this time on the left side of her face. 
after a lifetime of near misses with justice and death, two days before her 41st birthday, Belle Starr, the bandit queen, died on February 3, 1889. A newspaper reported she was assassinated in the most cowardly manner. Her murder remains unsolved to this day, but there are three suspects biographers consider. The first is Edgar Watson, the neighbor who left the party shortly before Bell did. Some accounts claim that in addition to being a not-so-friendly neighbor, Bell had learned from Watson's wife that he was wanted on a murder charge in Florida. In one of their arguments, Bell threatened to turn him in. Watson lived near where Bell was found, and his footprints were found in the mud near her body. However, Watson claimed he'd only gone outside once he heard the shots. He was formally investigated, but ultimately released due to lack of evidence. The second suspect was Jim July. Although he was supposed to be 60 miles away in Fort Smith at the time, his arrival there was never confirmed, and we know their relationship had been contentious leading up to her murder. But neither Watson nor Jim July, despite their resentment toward Bell, had much to gain from her death, and their motives are subject to speculation. Instead, the most likely suspect is none other than Bell's son, Eddie. Bell and Eddie were never known to be close. Bell was documented as being particularly harsh on her son, often beating and berating him in public. He also resented his stepfather, who was closer in age to Eddie than he was to Bell. A local doctor claimed that Eddie had come to see him only a few days before her death, seriously injured from the beating over stealing her horse. Eddie told him that he was going to kill his mother for what she did to him. It could have been said in the heat of the moment, but the timing is a little too close to be coincidental. Having been belittled, beaten, and berated by his mother, it's not hard to imagine that Eddie's resentment toward Belle built up to a breaking point. We'll never know for sure who pulled the trigger. Whatever your opinion of Belle may be, though, it's horrible to think that the last face she saw before she died may have been that of her son or husband. After her death, she received an elaborate, dignified burial. She was dressed in her favorite black velvet dress and placed in a pine coffin, holding her revolver. On February 6, 1889, she was laid to rest by neighbors, marshals, and Cherokee friends. A white marble headstone was placed on her grave. At the top of the headstone was carved a bell, a star, and a horse. Beneath her name, date of birth, and date of death was a poem. Shed not for her the bitter tear, nor give the heart to vain regret. Tis but the casket that lies here. The gem that filled it sparkles yet. Belle was raised as a highly educated Southern Belle in the Confederate South, but the Wild West suited her better. Like the landscape, Belle was dangerous, unpredictable, often lawless, Yet romantic, open, her life full of possibility. To this day, biographers disagree where the line between truth and legend lies. Some would call her the most notorious outlaw, a pistol in each hand, robbing countless trains and banks, all the while charming the public with her wit. Others would insist that Belle was no more than a convenient hero figure, associated closely enough with the riffraff of her day to draw excitement, but guilty of no more than association. 
This unknowable truth is probably what keeps us fascinated with Belle, as we continue to parse fact from fiction, hoping that the tales of her glory might be real. Nevertheless, the inscription on her headstone, which still stands in what was once Younger's Bend, holds true. Belle's star may be long gone, but the legend of the bandit queen remains a gleaming gem in the canon of America's Wild West. Thanks again for tuning in to Female Criminals. We'll be back next Wednesday with a new episode. You can find more episodes of Female Criminals, as well as all of ParCast's other podcasts, on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Play, or your favorite podcast directory. Several of you have asked how to help us. If you enjoy the show, the best way to help is to leave a five-star review. And don't forget to follow us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and Twitter at ParCast Network. We'll see you next time. Female Criminals was created by Max Cutler, is a production of Cutler Media, and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Dick Schroeder, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro and Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Carly Madden and Maggie Admire. Female Criminals is written by Alyssa Thorne and stars Sammy Nye and Vanessa Richardson.